You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So we are back in the letter of James. Now, uh, like we've said the last uh, several weeks, if you had to squeeze the whole letter of James, all five chapters down into two words, I hope that two-word summary is, to, is beginning to sort of live deep down in your heart. And that two-word summary is faith works. This is the point that James is making in every part of, of this letter and every passage in this letter, James is showing us the various ways that faith works. Uh, he shows us in chapter one that faith works in suffering and in temptation. He shows in chapter two how it works against favoritism. In chapter four, how it works um, in our fights. And last week, Jimmy showed us uh, out of James chapter five that faith even works in our wealth in that area of our life. And now here we are in in James chapter five, verses seven through 11. And James has another way he wants to show us that faith works. And here's his point. Faith works in our waiting. Faith works in our waiting. Or you could say it this way. Faith produces patience. Faith produces patience. Now in our world, waiting is in short supply. If you were just to name some of the defining sort of characteristics of the culture at large around us, uh, one of those defining characteristics would be impatience. Uh, we live in a microwave world. Uh, regardless of what you want, we want it right now. It is instant everything. Uh, there was a computer science professor who studied the viewing habits of 6.7 million viewers. Uh, so these are people online and how they're relating to online moments. And, and so just picture the moment you are on YouTube and you are going to click on a video to watch that video. He was trying to answer this question. How long will people wait for that page to load? Uh, before they bail, before they give up, before they do something else. Uh, here's what he found. Two seconds. Th that's the extent of our culture's patience. We don't wait for anything. And it's amazing how our world and culture has sort of began to cater toward our impatience. With a simple click, you can get just about anything you want delivered to your doors, to your door in two days. And if you live in a city like Dallas, a lot of things come in one day. It's amazing. We live in such an instant world. We are so instant oriented. Fast food isn't even fast enough anymore. In our fast food restaurants, we have put drive-through lanes. We've had those for a while. But if you notice lately that anytime you pull up in a drive-through lane, it looks like there is a freeway of drive-through lanes now. The last time you've been to Chick-fil-A, just picture that scene. There's like 19 lanes snaking through their drive-through. It's amazing. The whole tilt of our age is toward now. I want it now. But... That is not so with God. In God's world, waiting is the way. In Luke chapter 21, James's big brother, Jesus, he is uh, teaching a group of people and he is telling them that they're gonna have hardships in their life. They can expect suffering in their life. And then he gets to verse 19 of Luke 21 and Jesus says, it's by your endurance that you will gain your lives. It's by your patience or endurance that you will gain your life. Now, now think about what Jesus is saying there. Uh, Jesus isn't teaching that patience saves us. 
That's not the point Jesus is making. Rather, Jesus is saying that the faith that saves produces patience. It's not that patience saves, it's that saving faith produces patience. Now, we all need to let that drop down into our hearts. Patience is not a personality trait. It's not um, one of those things that some people have and some people don't. It's not a personality trait. Uh, Patience isn't an optional sort of item on the menu of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, That's not patience. Patience is essential in the Christian life. It is the the way of the Christian life. It is one that is walked in patience. Uh, Patience is uh, a work of the Spirit. It is the fruit of faith in the risen Jesus. And it's that precious fruit of faith, patience, that I want to think through with you today. Now, here is the main imperative of our text. Here's the main thing James is trying to get across to us. The main imperative, you see it in verse seven, the first two words, be patient. Just look at verses seven and eight again. Be patient, James says, that's a command. Be be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So you also, here it comes again, be patient. Now look at that word, therefore. It's the third word in verse seven, that word, therefore. Uh, That word connects our passage, verses seven through 11, back to the previous passage, the the first six verses in James chapter five. And in those first six verses, James addresses uh, the oppressors. That's that's sort of the target of those first six verses in James chapter five. But now in this passage, in this section of James five, James is addressing not the oppressors, but the oppressed. James is a pastor, This is who James is. This is what he's doing. James is a pastor and he's writing to people who are in pain. They they are suffering. This broken world has busted through the door of their life and it's breaking them. These people that he's writing to are discouraged. Their dreams have been dashed. Things just weren't going the way that things were supposed to go. And does that kind of sound familiar to you? That's sort of like your life and sort of like my life. And here comes the exhortation to sufferers, for those who are experiencing pain. Here comes the exhortation from James. Be patient. You see it twice in verses seven and eight. And those two twin commands, the same command in those back-to-back verses, they help us locate the main theme of this text. That's the thing, be patient. If you've got an ESV version of the Bible that you're looking at there, if you look right above verse seven, the ESV just sort of spells out the theme of the text. It says, patience in suffering. This is the theme that James is getting after. James's point is to say, faith works in our waiting. Faith produces patience. So what is patience? Well, here's a way to think about patience. Patience is the ability to suffer long without giving up or giving in. That's patience. It's the ability to suffer, not just for a day or two, but to suffer long without giving up 
or giving in. Now think about what the word patience implies. It implies that there is a problem in our life. It it implies that we are suffering, that something's wrong, that things in this life aren't working well or rightly. It's implying the the, the theme of suffering And, and patience is the ability to take the suffering that life in this broken world dishes us Uh, to to take that suffering and then to suffer long in it without giving up or without giving in. That's patience, the ability to suffer long without giving up. What, What does it mean to give up? Well, in suffering, despair and hopelessness have a way of knocking on our door daily I'm asking in a very seductive, warm voice if we will let them come in and make a home with us. And impatience is the moment when we hear the knock and that seductive voice and we invite hopelessness and despair in to to make a home with us. If you want a biblical example of that, you could think of Naomi. Uh, Do you remember Naomi? Uh, Naomi lost everything. Just her, she's standing in the ashes of her life. It was was a terrible, hard moment. And at one point it got so bad that that she looked at those around her and said, no longer call me Naomi. Uh, From now on, call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. She's saying, no longer am I Naomi. I have just become bitter with life. That's a biblical picture of what it looks like to give up in our suffering. Uh, Patience is the ability to suffer long without giving up or giving in. Impatience in our suffering beckons us to give up, but impatience is equally satisfied if we just give in. If we give in to anger and rage and irritability and revenge, think of the last time you saw road rage. I mean, a person just lose everything every bit of self-control in the middle of the traffic. Just imagine that moment. That's a picture of impatience, giving in. But patience is the ability to suffer long without giving up and without giving in. Now, if you think about the scriptures, uh, the the Bible has diverse language to describe the idea of patience. Um, Words like perseverance are are used. Uh, Words like endurance are used. Words like steadfastness are used. That's what James, uh, how he frames it in verse 12. Uh, But one of my favorite words in the Bible is the idea of waiting. That's another way the Bible talks about patience. Patience is a willingness to wait on Jesus when life is hard. To wait on Jesus when life is hard. And you find that that theme or that, that sort of biblical word of waiting, you find that laced throughout the Psalms and the prophets. Here are just a few examples. In Psalm 27, verse 14, the psalmist says, wait for the Lord, just admonishing us to wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That, that's an admonition and an encouragement, an exhortation to be patient. In Psalm 40, verse one, the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Or think about Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter three, verse 25. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. That's the biblical idea of patience. The Lord is good for those who wait patiently. Or how about this breathtaking verse in Isaiah chapter 40? In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 and 31, the prophet says this to us. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. 
but they who wait for the Lord, those who, who brace up under suffering, those who endure it, those who are patient, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Such a beautiful picture of patience in the Psalms and in the prophets. And it's this idea of waiting patiently that is embodied in the illustration of the farmer in verse seven. Just think about a farmer for a moment. A farmer tears open the ground. It just gashes the ground. And that's a picture of suffering. And in that gash in the ground, a farmer drops in a seed and then covers it with earth, covers it with dirt. That's a picture of a burial. And then the farmer waits for what only God can do. The farmer waits. He waits for God to bring the rain that's needed. He waits for God to bring the miracle of that seed germinating and coming to life, shooting its roots down into the soil, then rising from its earthly grave to produce fruit. He's, he's waiting on God to do all of those things. And the farmers, James is saying, they are a picture of patience. James is saying that, that farmers are, they're professional waiters. And James is saying, I want to admonish you to be like the farmers. He wants us to be more like them. He wants us to let faith, like the farmers, let faith produce patience in us. Uh, church, when I think about patience, I oftentimes think of it as a gift that we can give to God with our lives. Uh, patience is a way to let our lives say to God, God, I can't trace what you're doing. I don't know what you're up to, but, but God, through my patience in this moment, I am saying, I'm offering this gift to you. God, I trust you. That, that's patience. It's this beautiful gift that we can give God with our life of just saying to God, I don't know what all you're up to, but God, I trust you. And James is looking at the precious people that he's pastoring who are in pain. And he's looking at you and I today who are all in some form of pain and some form of suffering. And he's saying, will you give God the gift of your trustful waiting, of your patient waiting? Would you give God that gift? Now you get to verse eight and we get to our next command. In verse eight, uh, the next command uh, follows. Uh, James says, establish your hearts. That, that word establish is the same word uh, translated throughout the New Testament as strengthen. So it's establish or strengthen your hearts. Now, I love that phrase because that phrase is showing us where patience lives. Patience doesn't live out there in an action somewhere. No, patience lives deep down in here in our hearts. Now, because we all live in a broken world and because we're broken people, every day we wake up, we wake up to war. And here's one part of that war. Patience is over here. Impatience is over there. And every day, these two things are, are just going to war inside of us. And the ground that they're fighting on is the ground deep down in here in our hearts. Patience is an issue of the heart. Now, I also love this phrase because James shows us that while we wait, we have work to do. 
The, the patience is, is proactive. There are things we can do to cooperate with the Spirit to see the fruit of patience grow up in our life. There's things that, that, that we can do. The fruit of patience grows in a heart that is strengthened by the grace of God, that is rooted and established in the promises and character of God. Just think about what's required to suffer long without giving up or giving in. Think about what's required. Here's what's required. A strengthened heart. If we're gonna be patient people, it requires such a strong heart inside of us. And James uses the rest of this passage to show us ways that we can pursue patience by strengthening our heart. He shows us four ways here in this passage to strengthen our hearts, to, to work in the waiting. Four ways, and here's the first way. James tells us here to be patient by looking past the present. Here's one way we can proactively work in our waiting, that we can grow in our patience by, by looking past the present. It's an amazing thing to read the Bible and to see how obsessed the Bible is with our future. The Bible talks about our future all the time. The return of the risen Jesus is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. That's amazing. That is one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament in some way, shape, or form are pointing us toward the return of Christ. It's as if the scriptures, as we're reading it, wants to, to grab our face and to, and to keep tilting our head up out of our present suffering and up to this incredibly bright future that the life, death, and resurrection has secured for us. And that's especially important in our suffering, that we look past our present. Because when we suffering, or when we suffer, our suffering has a way of becoming all we see. We become obsessed with it. It just, our, our, our vision has a way of narrowing where all we can think about, all we can see in our life is our suffering. So watch what James does here in verse seven. He says, be patient in your suffering. He's imploring us to be patient, therefore brothers. And then listen to what he attaches onto that command. He attaches this onto the end of verse seven. Until the coming of the Lord. And then you see the same thing in verse eight. You also be patient, establish your heart, James says. And then look what he attaches to that verse. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is lifting our eyes above our present circumstances, above our present suffering to the day when Jesus splits the sky open and comes back for his waiting bride, the church. And there with the person that we were made for, in the place that was perfectly made for us, we will flourish with God forever. James is just sort of wetting our appetite for that moment when we are going to spend forever exploring the vast universe of God's heart and the vast creation that he has made for us with one heart-thrilling discovery after another. James is, is urging us to, to fix our minds on that future, to get our vision up from the present to that incredibly bright future that's coming for us. James is urging us here to wake up thinking about our future, to go to bed thinking about our future, to, to as our eyes close, to just 
ask God to give us dreams about our future. James is just saying, fix your eyes on the future that's coming. Now, why would James say that? Why would the Bible do that? 300 mentions of the return of Christ. Why is the Bible written like that? Well, I think this is the reason. Our future is designed to work back into our present. The the, the incredibly bright future that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus secured for us is meant to work back into our present to produce patience. That's the logic of the Bible. This is why James is saying, look to your future, obsess about your future, fix your eyes on your future, because your future has a way of working back into the present to produce patience in us. Uh, Watch the Bible's logic here. Uh, This is James's logic. In James chapter 1, verse 12, James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now, isn't that a strange way to talk? Uh, We typically don't think like that. Uh, That person is under incredible duress. He's suffering an incredible pain. Blessed is that man. That is typically not the way we think or talk. So so what is James getting at? How can he say, blessed is that man? Well, let's look at the end of the verse. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Here's the reason he's blessed. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James is saying, here's why this man is blessed. Because there is a day coming when God will make up for every earthly loss. That there is a day coming when a crown will will be fit over this man's head that will make up for every earthly loss. And this isn't just James's way of seeing things. This is also the way Jesus sees things. Do you remember the last beatitude? In Matthew chapter five, verses 11 and 12, listen to what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you when others revile you. We typically associate those two things together, blessing and reviling. But he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he goes on to say this in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Now, I I just, if I were to stop right there, I'm looking at that saying, Jesus, have you lost your mind? How how can that be? How can you say the person who is being reviled and persecuted, all kinds of evil being done to them? How can you look at them and say, that person is blessed? How can you look at them and say, hey, to that person, you should rejoice and be glad. Jesus, how can you say that? Well, he tells us how he can say it. Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus doesn't say, "Um, for your reward will be great in this life. That is not what Jesus says. Jesus takes our our line of sight, our vision, and he moves it past the present all the way into the future and says, no, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven, in heaven. This is the reason I think that James says, hey, look at the prophets. 
Down in verse 10 and 11, he says, look at the prophets. He uses them as an illustration to encourage us and to inspire us in suffering. And what do we learn from the prophets? Well, we learn that they were faithful to God and they suffered. They were faithful and they suffered. Being faithful to God does not make us immune to suffering. They were faithful to God and they suffered. But James says, look at them and learn because they suffered bitterly And if you just read any of the prophet's life, you'll see that, that they suffered bitterly. But James is saying here, but but we consider them blessed for great is their reward. They, They are blessed. Yes, they suffered, but yes, they are blessed. When we get our eyes looking to our future, it has a way of working back into us to change our present, to produce patience in us. Or this is another way to think about it. Uh, The scriptures tell us that earthly suffering will enrich our heavenly experience. Now, just meditate on that for a minute. Think about that for a minute. The Bible is saying earthly suffering, what, what we endure now, pain, trials, trouble, earthly suffering will enrich our heavenly experience. Listen to how Paul talks about this. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Listen to these amazing words. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction, saying for, for all of this earthly suffering, for, for this light momentary affliction, listen to what he says it's doing. It's preparing for us. This suffering is doing something, he's saying. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is an amazing promise. Paul's saying here that our present suffering will make heaven even more satisfying. Isn't that amazing? The more you suffer now, the, the, the more satisfying heaven will be later. Paul is saying here that God promises to bottle up every tear and turn them into eternal joy. That is an amazing promise. Paul is saying that the more tears now, the more joy you will experience later. Can can you imagine if we believe that in our suffering? Can you imagine how that would strengthen our hearts for patience in the middle of our suffering? I love how Thomas Brooks talks about 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that particular promise. Listen to these words. It's just an amazing paragraph. He says, should we be angry at that which works for our good? Actually, should, we be, should we be angry when hard things come into our life that, that in the end work for our good? And then listen to the illustration he uses. He says, if one friend should throw a bag of money at another, And in throwing the bag, that bag should graze his head. Well, that friend wouldn't be much troubled by it, seeing that by a small scrape, he got a whole bag of money. And then listen to him pull that sort of illustration into how we relate to God. He says, so the Lord may bruise us by afflictions, but it is only to enrich us. These afflictions work for us an eternal weight of glory. What if we started to see every moment of suffering like that? That that every moment of suffering is a moment where God's throwing a bag of eternal gold in our heads. And yes, it scrapes us, but, but yes, there is a bag of gold that we will enjoy forever with God. 
This is the logic of the scriptures. Can you just imagine how we would interact with, with moments of suffering if we really believed this? If our hearts were strengthened in this, rooted in this promise, established in this promise. In this way, our future is designed to work back into the present to produce patience. Church, our patience hangs on our capacity to believe God will use our present problems, our present delays, detours, disappointments, that he will use all of those things for our eternal good. That all of those things, all of those problems, all of that pain, it's just another bag of gold that is scraping our head that we will get to enjoy forever with God. May we let that promise sink down deep into our hearts today. James is saying, if you want to be patient, be patient by looking past the present. But he's got something else for us to do to establish or strengthen our heart. He says, if you want to be patient, Here's the way to patience. Be patient by refusing to grumble. By refusing to grumble. Grumbling is impatience turned into words. That's what grumbling is. And this is why James says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Uh, grumbling is dangerous, uh, not only because it gives voice to our impatience, but also because it deepens the roots of impatience in us. And grumbling is a particular temptation in times of suffering. It's a unique temptation in times of suffering. If you read the Old Testament, when the people of God suffer, the people of God grumble. And that is still true for us, the people of God. When we suffer, we are prone to grumbling. When we suffer, we instantly begin to, to look for the reason for our suffering. Whose fault is it? Who, who's behind it? So we start to point and to blame. and We start to find someone to look at and say, it's their fault. They're the reason that I'm suffering. We, we have this innate sort of tendency toward grumbling in our suffering. But the Bible is clear that ultimately all of our grumbling against others is really just grumbling against God that all of our horizontal grumbling against other people is really just an expression of our heart's frustration at God. Under all of our grumblings is a heart that is saying, God, not you, but God, me. I am the one who could really run this world the best. That's, what, that's the heart under all of our grumbling. And in seasons of suffering, grumbling is such a native language that our hearts speak that it's hard to even recognize and see. So here, James puts us on high alert. He is, he is trying to help us see where grumbling might be spilling out of our hearts and into our words. And James here is putting us on high alert and he is reminding us that when we grumble against others, it is putting us in the position of needing to be disciplined by God. Now think about that for a moment. James is showing us here that when we grumble against others, it is putting us in the position of needing to be disciplined by our dad, by God. You see this in verse nine. James says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that, to keep this from happening, so that you may not be judged or disciplined by God. Behold, he says, the judge is standing at the door. 
Um, I heard a pastor years ago tell the story of when he was uh, younger, being angry and frustrated at his mom. And that heart of impatience that was in him ended up spilling out into grumbling. And it ended up spilling out toward his mom as he looked at his mom and said to her, you're a fool. He looked at his mom and said those words, not realizing that his dad was home that his dad was in the house. And before those words even had a chance to get all the way out of his mouth, his dad walks in the room, looks at him like only a dad can. We all know that look. Looks at him like only a dad can and says, who's the fool? Who who, who did you say the fool was? And wisely, he he said, in that moment, I innately shrunk back and said, I am the fool. I am the one that is a fool. All the while, he just didn't realize his dad was at the door listening, that his dad was hearing everything he was saying. And James wants to remind us here, the risen Jesus is at the door. The risen Jesus can hear every word that's being said. He hears all of our grumbling. He hears all of the impatience in us coming out into words. And if we really believe Jesus was at the door listening, hearing every word, how might that change the words that come out of our mouth? How might that help us fight against grumbling? James is saying here that, that knowing that Jesus is at the door, the one that we love, the one who loves us, the one who has saved us and rescued us and redeemed us is at the door listening to every word. That should motivate us to fight against grumbling and for patience. James is saying, here's how you fight for patience, by refusing to grumble. But he's got something else to say. He says, if you want to grow in patience, if you want to work while you're waiting, establishing your heart, strengthening your heart, he says, be patient by considering his purposes. Be patient by considering the purposes of God. Look at verse 11. James says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So that's who's blessed. Their reward's gonna be great in heaven. Those who remain steadfast. And then he goes on, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You might circle that word purpose. That's the Greek word telos. It means goal or end or purpose is a great translation. And James is is lifting up the purposes of God in our suffering. And he's lifting up the purposes of God by getting us to look at, at, at Job. Now, what do we learn from looking at Job? Well, by the time you get to the end of Job chapter two, Job is standing in the ashes of his life. You just could not have had a worse day than Job has had. He lost all of his possessions. Uh, He lost all of his kids. All 10 of his kids have died. Just, it it could not be more gut-wrenching. And then he lost his health. Boils, terrible boils broke out all over his body. Um, It was so bad that his wife looked at him. Job's wife looked at him and said, Job, just curse God and die. What is wrong with you? Just give up, Job. Uh, but, But Job didn't give up. Job looked back at his wife and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. But then he just erupts into worship. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. There's the patience of Job. But Job's patience 
was not perfect. It was not perfect. If you keep reading in the story of Job, what you're gonna find is Job began to really wrestle with the Lord. He complained against God loudly, bitterly, arrogantly, and even defiantly, he complained against God. His patience was not perfect, but Job persevered. That little flame of faith in his heart wasn't quenched. It stayed alive in him. It kept burning in him. Even in the ashes of his life, Job endured. And that perseverance pleased God. Now, the climatic scene, the climatic moment in the whole story of Job comes in the closing chapters. Job has offered his complaints to God. He has said all he wants to say to God. And then God answers Job in his complaints. And in doing so, God humbles Job and and invites Job deeper into his heart. And listen to how Job described that encounter at the end of Job, Job chapter 42. Listen to how Job explained and and talks about what happened to him, what happened as as God met him in his suffering. Job chapter 42, verse five, Job says, "I, I had heard of you. God, I, I, I knew you. God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But, but now, at the end of my suffering, and you, you, God, meeting me in my suffering, but now my eyes see you. Now, now think about what Job is saying. Job knew God. Job was faithful to God before his suffering. If you read Job chapter one, you'll see that. He, he, he was a man who was faithful to God. But what he is saying at the end of the story is that there are wonders in the heart of God that only those who are bent and broken by suffering can see. I love how one author said it. She said, you don't have to sit outside in the dark. You don't have to to do that. You don't have to sit outside in the dark. If, however, you want to look at the stars, you will find that darkness is required. And that is so true of God. If you imagine God's heart as a vast galaxy with billions and billions and trillions of stars, those galaxies only come into view when great blows have laid us low. When we're heaving on the floor, wondering how in the world we're gonna survive if we're gonna ever be able to get back up again. It's, it's there, friends, in the darkness of suffering that the wonders of God begin to sparkle and shine. Now, this is why you so often hear sufferers talk like this. When they're looking back over their suffering, you, you so often hear people say things like this. They'll say, you know, I, I never would have chosen that path. It's, it's never the path I would have chosen. I literally thought I was gonna die. It was so dark and so difficult. I, I never would have chosen that path, but I, I wouldn't trade it for the world because it was there in the darkness of my suffering in the ashes of my life that I saw God, that, that, I, that I saw him that I went from a way of of hearing God with my ears to to seeing God with my eyes. He's there, right there with me and before me. And brothers and sisters who are in the midst this morning of just heart-wrenching suffering, let Job remind you that your suffering is not the end of your story. 
that your suffering is really a path that is gonna lead you to a knowing of God. The darkness of your suffering is the context through which God gets to open up the vast galaxy of his heart for you to see and experience. That's what God is up to. Job teaches us about the purposes of God. Our suffering is a way that God opens up his heart to us so that we can see and know it. That's the purposes of God in our suffering. And we'll finish here. Lastly, James says, if you want to strengthen your heart so that you can grow in patience, if you want to be patient, here's the way. Be patient by considering his heart, by considering the heart of God. Look at verse 11 again. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate, listen to that word, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When we suffer, we reflexively think hard thoughts of God. We reflexively think that God is angry, God is uncaring, God is hateful, God is out for revenge. Our hearts have a way of reflexively feeling and thinking those sorts of things. In our suffering, it is so hard to see God like this, compassionate and merciful. And I love that word compassionate in this text. Uh, The normal Greek word is here uh, for compassion, but there's a prefix attached to it. And that prefix is a prefix that means much or greatly. So so it's not just uh, the, the Lord is compassionate. No, it's he is greatly compassionate. It's not just that the Lord is tenderhearted. It's no, he is abundantly tenderhearted towards you. If you're suffering right now, I just, I want to look at you and say this. God's heart towards you right now is full of tenderhearted patience towards you. When he looks at you, it is with a big, compassionate, tender heart. That's how God is looking at you today. And if you want proof of God's patience towards you, all you need for proof is to gaze upon the dying love of Jesus, to just turn your gaze upon the cross of Christ. There you see the heart of God toward you on full display. Jesus, God's son, because of his tender-hearted compassion for us, gave his life for ours. His, his life for ours. He took our sin and all our sin deserves upon himself and he gave us his perfect life and all it deserves. You have never been treated as kindly and as tenderly and as patiently as God has treated you in Jesus. You've never been treated that kindly and that patiently. And here's why we need to consider the tender, patient, compassionate heart of God. When it comes to patience, you will never persuade your way in to patience. You will never be convincing enough or push yourself enough to to grow patience in you. You you can't do that. You can't persuade yourself into patience, but you can see your way into patience. You can can see your way into it. Uh, Years ago, I listened to a pastor tell the story of a person who was rescuing a stranded cat. 
And this cat was stranded on a branch in the middle of this rushing water. And as soon as the rescuer got to the cat and grabbed the cat, you you can probably uh, uh, picture what happened. Uh, in, In the moment of saving the cat's life, the cat turned on the rescuer. And the cat started um, biting and scratching and clawing the very one that was rescuing his life. And the pastor went on to say, if you're in Christ, that's your story. That is your story. To save us, Jesus was patiently killed by us, by our sin, by our lack of patience, by our hatred by our grumbling, by our anger, by our irritability. And friends, the more we gaze upon our tender-hearted and patient God, the more patient you and I will become. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment there where you are to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful today. to wipe away the things that would not be helpful for you. And for those who are suffering today, James is reminding us that you have a super compassionate, abundantly compassionate tender-hearted God who is open to you today, who is standing with you today, who sees you today. For those who your health has just vanished, to those who are grieving, maybe it's a wayward child or maybe it's a wayward parent, God, in in his big-heartedness, in his tender compassion, is, is grieving with you today. For those who are enduring just difficulties in your marriage that just feel unspeakable, they're so hard. Your tender-hearted God knows, he sees you, he is with you today. And that big, tender-hearted God is saying to you, I have the grace that you need. I have the grace that you need today. He's inviting you into his big, tender heart. And for others of us, we need to receive for the first time the patience of God today. And we do that through faith. We need to look at God and offer up our lives to God and surrender to God. This is, this is for some of us, this is your moment. You were the, the one who took the rescuer and, and all along the way is biting and clawing and killing the one who actually came to rescue you. But this is the day where you get to, to surrender for the first time to the one who came to rescue you. And you do that by turning from your sin 
And by throwing your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, by holding up your life to God and and saying to God, God, I am trusting in Jesus to save me. Here I am. And God stands ready and willing to welcome you into his family today. So if that's you right there where you are, take that decisive step to Jesus. So God, would you meet us today in the way that every single one of us in particular need? And God, would you grow in us patience? God, would you establish our hearts today? God, would you strengthen our hearts in your grace and in your promises for our life? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.